I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. We've come in our study of this book to what is undoubtedly the most exciting event in all of Bible prophecy, and that is the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. It's detailed in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, and it marks the climax of this book. This book is, is entitled in chapter 1, verse 1, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's the point where he is revealed in all his glory for all of mankind to see. And this is the blessed day that every Christian who knows anything about the Scriptures longs for. The day when Jesus will come again. The day when Jesus will be truly glorified. And the immediate reaction to this description in Revelation chapter 19 of his coming is that it stands in stark contrast to the first time that he came. His first coming was in humility. He was born in a barn. He was raised in obscurity in a little country town. He never owned his own house. In fact, today he, was, he would be categorized as homeless. Nowhere to lay his head. He suffered. He was abused. He was beaten by men. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was shamefully crucified. Isaiah describes his first coming in these words in Isaiah 53, 3. He was like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. He traded the brightness of heaven for the darkness of this world. He exchanged the height of exaltation for the depths of lowliness. He gave up the privileged place of honor for the forsaken place of shame. He left the nucleus of praise to become the object of ridicule. His first coming was marked by humility, but his second coming will be quite different. Jesus used these words to describe it in Matthew 24, 30. He said, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. We read about it in verses 11 to 16, this glimpse of his second coming. Notice verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. John sees heaven opened. And this is the second time this has occurred in the book of Revelation. It was opened in chapter 4 and verse 1 to take John up. And now it's opened here in chapter 19 as Christ returns. And that really reflects the two stages of Jesus coming. Stage 1, he will come to the air to take up his church. That's what we commonly call the rapture. And that could happen at any moment. But the second stage is when he comes to the earth to set up his kingdom. And that will occur at the end of the tribulation period. And so it's really one coming in two stages. He comes for his church and he comes with 
his church. And what we have described here is stage two, which is the primary stage. Christ returned to this earth in glory. And as we view him this morning, I'd like you to keep in mind the image of Christ when he first came, and I'd like you to notice the significant contrast in what you see here. I'd like to point out five obvious differences in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Number one, his attitude is different. Number two, his appearance is different. Number three, his associates are different. Number four, his authority is different. And fifthly, his activity is different. First of all, his attitude is different. We see that in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His attitude is different, and it's expressed in three things. It's expressed in his posture, it's expressed in his title, and it's expressed in his mission. First of all, it's expressed in his posture. His posture is that he's riding a white horse. Now, the white horse was a symbol of victory. In John's day, a triumphant king could be seen riding a white horse in a victory procession full of pomp and full of ceremony. And that's the imagery here. Christ's posture is that he is exalted. He is victorious. And so as he comes out of heaven, he's riding this white horse, a sign of victory and a sign of exaltation. And that's quite a contrast to his first coming. The last view the world had of Christ was as a criminal on a cross. The next view the world gets will be of Christ as a conqueror. At his first coming, he rode into Jerusalem in the words of Zechariah 9.9, humble and mounted on a donkey. The symbol of humility. At his second coming, he will ride out of heaven on a white horse. The symbol of exaltation. And then we see his attitude displayed in his title. His title we see in the middle of verse 11 is faithful and true. Now that's not a new title, but that title is going to be confirmed in tangible expression when the Lord Jesus comes out of heaven. Because he said he would come back, and now he's coming back, and the confirmation is there that he is faithful and true. He is faithful to his promises. He is true to his word. And the real contrast here is not between his first and second comings because he's always been faithful and true. The contrast here is between Christ and the Antichrist. And if you remember back in chapter 6 and verse 2, we see the Antichrist comes riding across the world on a white horse. But he proves himself to be an unfaithful liar. And now as heaven opens, the whole world is introduced to the one who is faithful and true. And then the third thing we see in verse 11 is his mission at the end. And he has two parallel missions. He comes to judge in righteousness and to wage war in righteousness. Jesus will come the second time to judge the world. Now, that's in direct contrast to his first coming. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world. He did not come the first time to judge. Jesus himself said in John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The first time Jesus didn't come as a judge, he came 
as a Savior. He didn't come to judge. He came to be judged the first time. But the next time he comes, he will come as judge. In Acts 17, 30, Paul said, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God's message is to repent because he has fixed a day for judgment, and in that day of judgment he will judge by a man, Christ Jesus, the one that he raised from the dead. And so his mission will be to judge in righteousness, but he has a second mission at the end of verse 11, and that is to wage war in righteousness. And all the war up to this point in Revelation has been unrighteous. We've seen the Antichrist waging war against the saints. And now Christ comes to wage righteous war. I want to make a point here, uh, and that is that war is not wrong in itself. Otherwise, Christ wouldn't come back waging war. War is not wrong in itself. Sin, which makes war necessary, is wrong. But the very act of war is not wrong. We see Christ come back and he's waging war, but it's a specific kind of war. It is righteous war. And that's certainly a contrast from his first coming. We see the Prince of Peace coming back as the Prince of War. And so his attitude will be quite different. In contrast to his first coming when his attitude was that of a humble, peaceful sacrifice receiving the judgment of the world he will be seen at his second coming as the exalted righteous warring judge and then we see a second difference and that is his appearance is different in verses 12 and 13 and notice how he's going to look verse 12 and his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself and his Clothing, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, John points out several unique features of his appearance. Number one, we see that his eyes are a flame of fire. And the idea is one of penetrating judgment. His eyes are such that he is omniscient. He burns through all the facades that man puts up. His eyes reach into the darkest depths of hearts and illuminate them. He sees everything. You know, many judges today desire to judge rightly, but they're restricted by the fact that they don't have all the information. Well, not only will he judge in righteousness, but he will have all the facts. He sees everything. His eyes are a flame of fire. And that's in contrast to his first coming because there we saw his eyes sparkling with compassion. And there we saw his eyes filling with tears at the death of Lazarus and over the rebellion of Jerusalem. And there we saw his eyes closing in death to cover the sins of this world. But when he comes again, his eyes will be a flame of fire penetrating through the hearts of rebellious man in judgment. And then secondly, we see that upon his head are many diadems. Now, you don't have to speculate how Christ is going to do a balancing act with all these crowns because this is symbolic language. It denotes authority, majesty, sovereignty. 
In 2 Samuel 12, 30, David took the crown of a captured king and he put it upon his own head, indicating that he had now claimed this man's dominion. And that's the idea here. Christ comes back with many crowns. In fact, actually, he has all the crowns. Because if you look down in verse 16, it says he is the king of kings. He wears all the crowns. He has all the dominion. And that's in contrast to his first coming when the only crown that he wore was the crown of thorns. And then thirdly, we see at the end of verse 12 that he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Now, this is not his only name because, in fact, we're told in this passage of two other names that he has. In verse 13, he's called the Word of God. In verse 16, he's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not his only name, but he will have a name that no one will know. That's rather intriguing to me. Jesus is going to have a name written upon him, and no one's going to know what that name is. Now, a name in Scripture always indicates a person's character. The, the name Jesus is from the Hebrew word named Joshua, and it means Savior. In Matthew 1.21, Joseph was told by the angel, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sin. Jesus means Savior, and that identified his character and his mission in his first coming. So a name identifies character, and Jesus has a name which no one knows. Now what does that identify? What does that represent to us? Well, I think it represents this. I think it means that Jesus will have aspects to his character beyond our knowledge. I think it means that he will have a glory and a character that is all his own. And this really sort of emphasizes his deity. There will be parts about Christ that we will never know. They were, there will be parts about Christ that we will never be able to comprehend. Yes, we will be like him, according to 1 John 3, 2, but he will forever be the unique, glorious one. There will always be something awesomely mysterious about the Lord Jesus because he is the, invent, the infinite, unsearchable God. He has a name upon him which no one knows. And then we see a fourth thing about his appearance, and that's in verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, that's pretty, pretty graphic. His, his clothing is soaked with blood. In fact, the word dipped can be translated splattered. And it's an image Christ spoke about prophetically in the Old Testament, describing himself as the one who would tread men in God's winepress. And in Isaiah 63, 3, he says, I also trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. So as he comes to judge and wage war, we see him splattered with the blood of sinful men. Graphic picture. And that's a contrast to his first coming, when the only blood he shed was his own. And then fifthly, we see in the verse 13 that he has a name. He is called the Word of God. Now, a word is a means of expression. A word is a means of communication. And he is the Word of God. That is, he is the expression of God. He is the one who communicates God to man. This was his name when he first came. 
John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John 1.14 it says, The Word became flesh. He became a man, communicating God to us. And what was God saying the first time? Well, we find out in John 1.14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. What was the message from the Father when He sent the Word the first time? The message was grace and truth. Jesus was the personification of the grace of God. But when He comes again, He won't be communicating grace because the day of grace will be over. When he comes again, he won't be communicating grace because men have rejected his grace. When he comes again, he will be communicating God's justice. And that's what God will be saying. Jesus will be the personification of the judgment of God. And so his appearance will be different. In contrast to his first coming when his appearance was that of a compassionate, bleeding Savior crowned with thorns, he will be seen at his second coming as a flaming, sovereign, exalted ruler, splattered with the blood of his enemies. And then a third difference we see is his associates, verse 14. It says, And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. When Jesus comes, he won't be alone. He will be accompanied by the armies of heaven. They will be dressed in white linen, and they will also be wearing white horses. You say, well, who is this? Well, who's dressed in fine linen, white and clean? Look back at verse 8. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Who wears fine linen, bright and clean? The bride does. And we said that's the church. And so he's talking here about the saints. He's talking here about us who are believers. In Colossians 3, 4, we're told when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, and here he is revealed, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Who comes riding out of heaven on these white horses? It's us. It's the church. You know, when Christ returns, we'll be with him. That's exciting. You know, there are a couple deductions here that I have to point out to you. And that is, number one, if he's going to come back with us, then he must have previously come for us. Can you come to that deduction? If he comes out of heaven at the end of the tribulation with the church, then he must have at some point previously come for the church. And that's simply another confirmation of the fact that the rapture that we talk about is going to happen before the tribulation period. We will be taken up because at the end of the tribulation we are coming back with him out of heaven riding on white horses. And then there's a second deduction here, and that is that we're a rather unusual army. You know, we're not dressed in army fatigues. We're dressed in fine linen, you know, like a tablecloth. And we're not wearing camouflage. We're white. Can you imagine this? We're an army. We're wearing fine linen. We're white. The word literally means bright, brilliant. Here we come in these bright, brilliant garments out of heaven. You know, we're a target for everybody in this army. What it tells me is that we're not going to do much fighting. In fact, I don't think we're even going to lift a finger. I think all we're going to do is follow the warrior, Jesus Christ, to victory. And so, in verse 14, we see 
Christ will come with the armies of heaven. And that's quite a contrast from his first coming, where we saw him with a few shepherds and a few wise men and a few believers and a few disciples who quickly departed when the enemy approached. And ultimately and finally, there's the image of Jesus hanging all alone on the cross of Calvary. But his second coming, he won't be alone. His associates will be different. In contrast to his first coming when his associates were but a small band of fearful followers, he will be seen in his second coming accompanied by the armies of heaven. And then a fourth difference we see is his authority in verses 15 and 16. Notice, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now that's authority. Notice the terminology. He will smite the nations with a sword. And we're told that this sword comes from his mouth. And most feel that this is representative of the Word of God, which we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so out of his mouth comes this sword representing the Word of God. He created with the Word. He said, let there be. He will also smite with his Word. Isaiah 11:4 describes it when it says, and he will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. To hundreds of Roman soldiers in the garden prior to his crucifixion, he said the simple words, I am, and they all fell down. That was just to get their attention. Can you imagine what it's going to be when he comes to smite the nations with the word of his mouth? That's quite a contrast to his first coming. He will come again to smite the nations. The first time he came, he was the one who Isaiah said was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then we see further in verse 15, it says, He will rule with a rod of iron. You know what the best form of government is? The best form of government is a totalitarian government with a perfect dictator. Today we see a totalitarian government with a very imperfect dictator at work in this world. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to show us the perfection of how to rule over this world. He's going to rule with a rod of iron, and he's going to rule in perfection and righteousness. And that's quite in contrast to his first coming as well, when he came as the good shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. When he comes again, he'll have a rod of iron. And then the third picture we see in verse 15 is that he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Not only will he be the judge, but he will be the executioner. And just as the grapes were placed in the winepress and an individual would take his shoes off and trample and crush those grapes until the ju juice was exuded, so Christ will carry out God's wrath upon sinful men. And that is quite in contrast to his first coming. His first coming, he didn't come to crush. He came, in the words of Isaiah 53, 10, to be crushed by the Lord. And so you can see his authority in verse 15. He will smite the nations. He will rule the nations. He will judge the nations. And then his authority is clearly defined by his title in verse 16. It says, And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings 
and Lord of Lords. On this blood-drenched robe is his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's not a whole lot to add to that. He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And that, again, is in total contrast to his first coming when Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so his authority will be different. In contrast to his first coming when his authority was expressed in his role as a servant, he will be seen at his second coming as the reigning, ruling King of Kings. And then a fifth difference we see in this passage is his activity in verses 17 to 21. And his initial activity will be to put a swift end to the battle of Armageddon. And under the sixth bowl that we saw back in chapter 16, verses 12 to 16, we saw that the Euphrates River was dried up so that all the kings of the earth could gather together to the valley of Megiddo, the place where the war of God will take place. And when all these kings are in place in this valley, then we see Christ coming out of heaven. And we can view this battle very simply in four parts. We see the call, the conflict, the captives, and the carnage. First of all, the call, real quickly, verse 17. He says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God. Now, God put on a marriage supper in heaven earlier in this chapter. Now he's going to put on a different kind of supper. This is a supper for the birds. And notice the menu, verse 18. In order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. A call goes out to the birds flying in mid-heaven that they would come because there's going to be a supper of God. And that supper is going to be all the men that have rebelliously turned against God. And it's kind of intimidating if you were one of these kings because you've got your armies gathered there in the valley of Megiddo and the vultures are flying overhead before the battle ever starts, sort of indicating that you're in trouble. And then secondly, we see the conflict, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. You say, well, you, you know, here's the beast, the Antichrist. He's got all these kings. They're all arrayed in battle array and they're ready to go to battle against Christ and his armies. And you say, well, why would they ever go to battle against Christ, they don't have a chance. Well, the answer is back in chapter 16. And if you read verse 14, it says, the demons went out and they gathered these kings together. They're under the control of Satan. They gathered them together for the war of God. And they're here for a purpose. They're gathered there in this valley in the northern part of Palestine when Christ comes out of heaven. And then we see the captives in verse 20. It says, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Back in chapter 13 and verse 4, we're told that the people of this earth will worship the beast and they will say to him, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Well, here's the answer. And the answer is Christ. Because here he comes and he seizes the beast and the false prophet, and they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. And lest you think that doesn't sound too bad, slide down in chapter 20 to verse 10 
because this is a, an event that takes place a thousand years later. Chapter 20 and verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. They were thrown in alive in chapter 19 and verse 20. A thousand years later, they're still there. And it says at the end of verse 10, And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then fourthly, we see the carnage of this war in verse 21 of chapter 19. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. Notice, it's Christ who does the killing. We're following. It's the sword that comes from his mouth. It's his word in judgment. And then the end of verse 21 is graphic again. And it says, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Christ's activity when he comes will be to totally annihilate the Antichrist and his forces. And that's quite a contrast to his first coming. When he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my followers would be fighting. When he said to Peter, Peter, put up your sword. Don't you know that I could ask the Father and he would send me 12 legions of angels? He didn't come the first time to fight. But when he comes again, he will be dressed in battle. So his activity will be different. In contrast to his first coming when his activity was that of a passive lamb, he will be seen at his second coming as a triumphing warrior. Jesus came the first time in humility, and men mocked him. And many men continue today to mock him. But just as he promised, he's coming again. And his second coming is going to be different. He'll have a different attitude, judgment. He'll have a different appearance. He'll be crowned with crowns. He'll have different associates, the armies of heaven. He'll have a different authority. He'll be king of kings and lord of lords. And he'll have a different activity, the war to end all war. I wonder this morning, are you ready for him? Are you ready to meet him when he comes again? You know, I talked with David on Thursday, and he sat in the office, and he told me a similar testimony to the one he shared today. But one thing he did say to me was, he said, I, I felt real conviction about the way I was living my life, and I began to read the Word of God. And he said, the thing that hit me out of the Word of God is that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back real soon. And he said, I realized that I needed to repent and seek to know him. That was exciting to me. I was just getting chills listening to that. Because he went to the Word of God, and what does it say over and over again? Jesus is coming again. And we can look on our newspaper headlines today and realize that it's not very far away. And that ought to have an impact on our lives. Jesus is coming. He's coming initially to take his own, and then finally he's coming to this earth in glory to set up his kingdom. I've asked Debbie Wade and the choir to come and sing a special. And they can come at this time... Uh, they're going to sing a song about the coming of Christ called Then He Comes. And I'd like you to listen to the words of this song. And I'd like you to think about the question that I addressed to you this morning. Are you ready for the coming of Jesus Christ? And as they sing, I want you to think about your response to His coming. And if you're ready, I want you to rejoice as you listen to this song. And if you're not ready, then I invite you 
to do as David did and as so many others are doing around this world today, that you would repent and surrender your life to the Lord Jesus. Lamb opened the first seal, and behold, a white horse rode out conquering and to conquer. Then he broke the second seal, and another horse, fiery, red, ravaging the earth, stealing its peace. The third seal was loosed, and a black horse raced the wind, and scarcity covered the land. He opened the fourth seal, and a pale horse, gray as ashes, rode with death on its back, with the power to kill one-fourth of the earth. When the fifth seal was broken, the cries of the souls of the martyrs split the air. How long, O Lord? How long until you avenge our blood? How long? Then he broke the sixth seal and the seventh. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Yes, and he will send his angels to the earth to gather those who through suffering will come to a faith in Christ.
ask uh, David and Charlotte Stagner if they would come up at this time. And uh, they were baptized this morning. Uh, their children are not with them today, but they have a son, Mark, a daughter, Michelle, and a daughter, Jennifer. And uh, they uh, want to become part of this church family. And so I'll ask them to come up here to the front. And when the service is over, you can come up and uh, make them welcome and make them feel at home here. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity to look at an exciting passage of Scripture, and yet at the same time, it's a very somber and sobering chapter of Scripture. And Father, perhaps some of us today have, have taken a, a, maybe a different angle, a different look at the Lord Jesus, maybe one we haven't seen before. He came as the one to be judged the first time, but he will come the second time as the righteous judge. And Lord, I pray that if there are any sitting in this room today who have never met him as Savior, that they might come to know him today so that they won't have to face him as judge. And Lord, I pray that all of us in this room can join our voices together with John to say, even so, come Lord Jesus. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen.